Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where I'd ask you to please consider turning 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, page 835 in the church Bibles. And in a moment, I'll tell you why we're there. And I will tell you now that for the remainder of the summer, all spared and Lord willing, we're going to be spending the summer in the Psalms. So just keep that in mind, not this Sunday, but in the coming Sundays, we're going to be doing that. So in just a sec or two, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 all the way to verse 10, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And again, if, or as always, I should say, if you have a question or two about Jesus Christ, the Bible, or what you heard this morning, it would be happy to try to answer those questions for you when our time is through. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's take a moment and pray to seek the help that we need from our Father in heaven. So Father, our, our prayer is... Simple, make, make this book live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make this book live in us. And we ask for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in everything and to help us in all the things needed as we study your word, the Bible, this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. So let's give you a word of warning as we work through this topic on personal evangelism Picture yourself on an airplane, and so what we're going to do is we're going to go right to 38,000 feet, and then when we get to 38,000 feet, you're going to be thinking, oh my, we're going to be here forever. We're not. As soon as we get to 30,000 feet, we're not going to really cruise. We're just going to be going straight down into our descent to the Lord's table. So just keep that in mind, okay? So I've given myself the brief this morning of speaking to you from the Bible on the Christian and personal evangelism. And what happened was this developed out of our Wednesday night at the park ministries and the concern there for how we might be better equipped to evangelize. And in thinking about this, I look back at the sermons that I preached since the beginning of this year, 2014, and I asked myself the question, how many of those sermons were directly or indirectly tied to the need of or the way of evangelism for the follower of Jesus Christ? And when I did that, I was, I was encouraged because as I looked through my sermons, roughly about a third of the 21 or so sermons um, that I've preached thus far directly or indirectly have something to say about 
announcing either the need of personal evangelism or the way of personal evangelism for the follower of Christ. So, for example, it was only two weeks ago when we were in the book of Jude, verses 22 and 23, and Jude explained to us the way that we are to approach the unconverted, self-deceived religious person with the truth of the gospel. And so we went through that and find those three different kinds of characteristics that Jude gave us, and we worked that. So as soon as I had that thought in my mind, my mind was then led to a quote on, from J.I. Packer that I keep in my little black book that says this, If one preaches the Bible biblically, then one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. And every sermon will be at least by implication evangelistic. Which makes complete sense because if one preaches the Bible biblically or expositionally, verse by verse mostly, as it was written in the original intentions, then you, what you're going to do, if you're an honest person, is very quickly discover that the Bible is a book about Jesus and Jesus was all about the gospel. So Sinclair Ferguson once said, pastor, retired pastor now, he said, the pulse beat of the heart of Christ has an evangelistic rhythm. Where do you find God? seeking his people. So Jesus was all about the gospel. He lived it. He declared it. He died for it. And whether the gospel in the scriptures are being explained or defended or bringing clarity to a congregation or encouragement to a congregation or even a rebuke to a congregation that is either uh, neglecting their gospel privileges or neglecting their gospel duties... What you'll find straightforwardly as you read your Bibles in a sensible way is that the gospel is the plumb line, or better yet, it is the foundation of everything that it means to be a Christian, what it means by the basis or the strength behind Christian instruction or Christian vocation and ministry. In other words, the Bible is dripping with the gospel. And when you go to the Bible, what you're going to find is that the main and plain thing on what it means to be a Christian is essentially this. Since it's true that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, in other words, he owns every room, since that's true, and since God has reconciled his people to him by the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ, the Christian is now given the supreme privilege. And you have to think of personal evangelism that way. It is a supreme privilege of being the spokesperson for God in that ministry of reconciliation to others. Think of it this way. If the public congregational worship of Jesus Christ is the highest of all human activity, and it is, then it is equally true that both preaching and proclaiming personal evangelism in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and returning is a very close second. In other words, tell me two things better than the public worship of Jesus Christ with God's people and personal evangelism. So since Jesus is Lord, since all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus, all believers are given the privilege to make disciples. And I'm only going to say this once because it's not the benefit of the talk, but as a whole, the Christian community in the West at this point in our history admittedly is not very good at this. So that reality becomes the basis of everything that will be said this morning. So if we ask the question, well, why is it that we're not very good at personal evangelism as a whole? You have to answer that question with another question do we even know what personal evangelism is? And I think that's a very, very fair question. What is actually personal evangelism? 
And so to answer that question, we can say personal evangelism, and you get the basis of this from 1 Corinthians 15. Personal evangelism in its very essence is at least this. Addressing the sinner in their sin, addressing the fact of their guilt before God, addressing the issue of their absolute helplessness, and offering them Christ as their only Savior, thereby declaring God's love for them and God's wrath on sin and the absolute certainty of a day of judgment in these things. That is at its core what personal evangelism is. If you're not doing that, then you're not personally evangelizing. Or if you like, personal evangelism is gently and respectively explaining the gospel to others with a view to their conversion. Now, loved ones, that is not the same as trying to help people with their marriage, help people with family issues, finances, or tweaking the message of Christ crucified into kind of like a political theme or quality of life issue and so on. Because none of those things by themselves, are the gospel. Are they important? Well, on some level, absolutely they are important. Are, do we begin, are we to begin with them? Do they save? In other words, if someone's family and marriage and finances and life and politi- political persuasions were all to their liking, would they then be reconciled to a holy God's wrath on their sin? Of course not. Absolutely not. So remember this. People may very well come to us with life problems and we ought to listen carefully and respectfully. But we dare not replace theology with with our own personal therapy for them. Because we must take, and this is the biblical pattern, you must take the gospel first and chiefly. Because what does it profit a man or a woman or a young person? to gain the whole world, to have all their ducks in a row, to have everything in their life just the way they always wanted it, and then forfeit their soul. There's no acceptance with God unless there is repentance to God, repentance in Jesus' name. So again, what is personal evangelism? Well, it's telling the message of the cross. It is addressing the sinner in their sin. Addressing the fact of their guilt before God. Addressing the issue of their absolute helplessness. And offering to them Christ as their only Savior. Thereby declaring God's love for them. And God's wrath on sin. And the absolute certainty of a day of judgment in these things. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said to his congregation. If I can't preach you into heaven. Let me try to scare you into heaven. You have to understand his heart there. It's like I'll do anything in the world that's correct. To get you into heaven. Second question. First question, what is personal evangelism? Second question, why then is it so difficult to evangelize in these days? And an honest person would have to admit it is very, very difficult. Well, there are a number of answers. Here are just a few. First of all, personal evangelism is in every age is hard work. It calls for much prayer. It calls for the fundamental redirection of our fallen nature over and over and over again. It's a whole new way of living because, because personal evangelism messes with your day planners. It's a long road. It's a long road most of the time to see one, one to Christ. I told the first, uh, first service this. I'll tell the second you guys this. There's only one time in my existence in personal evangelism where someone actually came up to me and essentially said, tell me about Jesus and I gave them the gospel and immediately they were converted. That just happened once, and there was a way wonderful, wild story behind it. 
But the bent of personal evangelism, it is a long road if we're going to see one one to Christ. And of course, it calls for us to be unashamed of the gospel. I'm giving an example. In the mid-1990s, the Church of Jesus Christ, or Church of Christ, excuse me, uh, below the Mason-Dixon line, this is in the south, they did a a study on their movement and they asked themselves this question. What is happening to our evangelistic zeal that we once had? What is happening to our commitment to the church? And what is happening to our zeal for Christ that we once had? So what they did is they got their best and brightest minds and they did this study and they were able to develop a kind of consensus on what they thought the problem was. And one of the things they said is that a growing number of churches in the Church of Christ, and uh, the members, had essentially crossed over the other side of the tracks, okay? In other words, they were doing so much better by way of living standards and economic capability, and that because they had crossed the other side of the tracks, in the cases of the Church of Christ, their, their zeal for Christ had just waned. Now think biblically here, because that makes absolute sense. This is what Jesus said in the parable of the sower, Remember? Life's worries, life's pleasures, and the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Right? There's nothing wrong with the word. It's when the word is planted in the heart that the trouble begins. And so in the cases of the Church of Christ in the 1990s, they found the words of Jesus as they always are to be true. Now, let me give you another example that touches on that. My wife and I lived below the Mason-Dixon line in the mid-1990s, and one time we were at a Church of Christ party, if you can believe it or not. And there were Church of Christ people. We weren't Church of Christ people, but we were invited to the party. And so there was a Church of Christ lady at the Church of Christ party. And she was telling all the other Church of Christ young couples, hey, hey, when you live in Austin, Texas, the safest place to live is on the west side. Don't you dare live on the east side because on the east side, you know, there's a rough and tumble crowd. On the west side, everybody's safe and happy and good. And so the conversation goes on and she came up to Nicole and I and she said, hey guys, where do you live? And we said, we live on the east side. You know, we showed her our tattoos and gave her some gangster signs. No, no, just kidding. But you see, it rings true, doesn't it? Jesus isn't a liar. And so we need to understand we're not the church of Christ. We understand that, but we are human. And, and no one is saying, absolutely not, that having lots of money is inherently evil. No. But we would be foolish to say, to think that having lots of things could ever be a distraction of doing what we should do in the place where God has placed us. That would be foolish too. Listen to your Bible, 1 Timothy Chapter 6, command those who are rich. One day when I get to heaven, Lord willing, I'm going to ask Paul, Paul, really? Do you know what rich people are like? You want me to command them to be, <laughs> command people to be rich in this, pre- or command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. See? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, and listen to this, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. And that's the key, truly life. So true life is not kicking back. Kicking back is nice only as it serves a purpose. Kicking back is nice so that we can, if you would, kick it in for Jesus when we need to. Okay, why the difficulty in personal evangelism? One, personal evangelism is very hard. It's a radical change, a continual change in the fundamental direction of our life. 
Number two, personal evangelism is squashed behind the pulpit. That's why it's so hard these days. And the assumption that I have here is this, and it's an honest and it's a fair one, that the preaching of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the cross behind many a pulpit is no longer the great concern. In other words, if you follow the lead from the pulpit, in many places, the preaching of the cross is not a priority. The preaching of the cross is an absolute necessity and everything is not a priority. Now, we're not talking about Easter and Christmas Eve and all that kind of stuff. We're just talking week by week by week. Do you get moralism? Yes. Do you get how-to preaching? Yes. Do you get a cultural war stuff? Yes. You know, three steps to the really great life? Yes. I mean, there, there are a whole lot of circles, Christian circles in America that, that come to us and, and they say, this is what you need to do. You need to have two months of sermons on sex, two months of sermons on finances, two months of sermons on personal fulfillment, and then you, at the end of your six months, you need to go back and do it all over again because that's what the people want. And when that happens, all of a sudden, the gaze of the church is sent away from looking to Jesus Christ to either looking to ourselves or looking at something else. And therefore, there's no climate in the church created where the church is so engaged with their non-Christian friends, telling them of Christ, inviting them to church, seeking to see them come to Christ, that all of a sudden, normal Christian evangelism is no longer considered the norm of Christian living. That if you're an evangelist, personal evangelist, then you're like the extra special, great, go-go Christian. When you look at your New Testament, as we'll do that in a moment, we'll see that that is not the case. And so the, some of the blame lies at the pulpit. And again, to the extent where that's true, and many people brighter than me say this, you have to come to com- some conclusions. Well, why is that true? Well, there's cultural reasons. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 18. It's an absolute idiotic thing to say that a 30-year-old, a 30-something-year-old young man bled and died on a cross for the sins of the whole world. Really? So if we think that our greatest influence is going to be when we tweak the message so that we'll become more popular or accepted in the culture, when we start speaking of, hey, I can tell you how you can get rid of all your problems by the time you turn 30. None of this dying on the cross stuff, I'll get rid of them for you. Then we leave, if we're going to do that, we leave the message of the cross behind. Why? Because it's a foolishness. It's an idiocy to those who are perishing. But to the Christian, the message of the cross is our only hope in life and in death. It's the power of God. And surely many a pulpit has abandoned the message of the cross as her meat and as her drink. So there's cultural reasons, but there's also personal reasons, right? If, if you say to the listening world, whether behind this pulpit or across your street, Jesus is the only way to God, then many times immediately you are taken uh, by some as a narrow-minded bigot. And that is very difficult to handle, to be quite honest with you. Well, why is it? Well, I think that we live in such a subjective age where individual choice is more and more trumping objective truth. Now, please pay attention here. That we are being trained more and more to have it our way. And then it becomes no real surprise that the exclusivity of of the only way to God is Christ and the exclusivity of this is how you are to live for Jesus in these days, i.e. the teachings of Christ, is immediately cast aside as either we are losing our personal rights if we do this, or, or dogmatic theology from a bygone age, or someone who's trying to control people. 
Now you couple that with an ever-increasing segment of our population in and out of the church who have no great grasp of the Bible. They either use it as a weapon, you know, or a nightstand or something. And therefore, when that happens, when you have no great grasp of the Bible, understanding the Bible, all of a sudden you create a conscience. You create a way of life that is untrained by the Bible. And then all of a sudden you begin to see the problem. And so I call this this great big pile of goop. Not, not poop, but goop. Okay? This is my great big pile of goop. You have personal rights, personal beliefs, personal freedoms, personal convictions, trumping timeless truth. And thereby you create an unwillingness to the individual to question themselves, to ask themselves the hard questions about their life, so they plunge into a mechanism or a belief system that's essentially moral relativism. If it feels good to me, then I'm going to do it. So when or if the person determines to get spiritual, in our pluralistic age, and I know you're going to agree with me, you can go almost any place to find either what you want to believe or you can create a place that is exactly the way you want to believe. And so what you have then is a kind of privatized gospel. And now you see why I call it goop. Now, are you with me? Why is personal evangelism so difficult? Personal evangelism is, is hard work. That's why. It's, it's changing our life constantly for the glory of Jesus Christ. Personal evangelism is squashed behind the pulpit. Cultural reasons. The, the message of the cross is foolishness. Who wants to hear that? Well, that's what people need if they're going to be converted. Personal reasons. And we can see then the temptation to capitulate, to, to just surrender, or maybe even move back so we'll get a larger audience, or just maintain our current life. And can we know this, and, and we have to know this, there is not to be in any sense, as we speak about these things, that to arrange our life, to do personal evangelism, that somehow we're losing something big. We are... But we're, but we're not. We are losing something big. Jesus was serious when he said we must carry our cross. But we aren't later where, where it matters most. So, so we need Pilgrim's Progress to help us here. Remember worldly, Mr. Worldly Wise Man? He was the bad guy. He was a portly fellow who lived in the town of morality. And he looked at evangelists in his ragged clothes because he was carrying his burden, the cross. And Mr. Wiseman says, oh, you know, you don't need that way of life, son. If you want to live the good life, then you're just going to have to come my way. I don't have any crosses. I don't have any burdens. And we do things with great respectability here. But no one becomes a Christian. And then there's the other two little kids, passion and patience. Passion wants all the good things now. Right now, I've got to have them. Patience still wants good things, but patience is willing to wait. Now, so that we will not be disheartened, there's some things that you're probably doing right now that are not actually personal evangelism, but they are promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, we promote the gospel of Christ in our prayers. Matthew 9.38, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of harvest to send workers into the field. So as we pray those prayers, we are promoting the gospel. We promote the gospel with our money. 1 Corinthians 9.14, those who preach the gospel ought to have their living received from the gospel. In other words, your giving makes for the preacher's living. So we promote the gospel in prayers through giving. We promote the gospel with good works in the church. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We promote the gospel also with good behavior. That's the argument of Titus 2.10. Titus is telling slaves, listen slaves, work, work great in your employment and your slavery. Work hard for Jesus so that, you ready? Make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Make it so that people want to look and say, why are you such a hard worker? Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then finally, promoting the gospel, we do this when we public, publicly worship Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 13 and 14. That's why public worship is so important. You know, just in a practical way. The people are going to drive by the church and the little kid in the car with his, or the truck with his dad is going to say, why are those people there, dad, right now? Why are they there? And dad's going to have to answer that question. Well, they're there worshiping Jesus Christ. But dad, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, son, maybe we can talk later after lunch. Those distinctions, those promotions of the Gospels, those distinctions give us a way of life that is utterly different than the outsider. But as good as that is, and as necessary as it is, and it is good and it is necessary that we promote the Gospel by prayer, by giving, by good works, by good behavior, by public worship of Jesus Christ, that is still not proclaiming the Gospel. And 1 Peter 2 tells us, you, Christian, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare ex angelo, uh, advertise, promote, proclaim the gospel of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So now we're at 38,000 feet and we're on our way down. So fasten up. Put your trade tables up. Put everything away. I'll be coming through to pick up your garbage in just a minute. Don't you love flying? I love flying. Okay. Okay, so then Thessalonians. Four little points we're just going to work straight through. And, and this is, this is um, new converts. Brand new converts. And this is what Paul says. First of all, if we're going to be helped by personal evangelism, we need to follow this pattern as, as a God-given pattern. Number one, the gospel came. Do you see that there in verses 4 and 5? For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, our concern is not so much how the gospel came, though that is important, but that the gospel actually came. I mean, it was actually preached. Christ died for your sins. You and I are sinners. You'll always be sinning sadly. As long as you're in the flesh, then God demands absolute perfection. What are you going to do? Good news, since God is a loving God, He Himself satisfied His own wrath on your sin and my sin. That's verse 10b. By sending Jesus Christ, His only Son, to suffer and die for sin. Not His sin, but ours. So, so the gospel actually came. And, and you farmers and you gardeners, you know this. If there's no seed planted, then there is to be no harvest expected. So if you want corn, you plant corn. If you want converts, you want converts, you give them the gospel. And so the gospel was preached. Now here's the point. There's a divine order to this. It's, this is the divine order to the divine imperative of personal evangelism. It begins with the preacher. The sent preacher giving the given gospel. In other words, the preacher's not saying, you know, I was, I was taking a walk the other day and I thought about X and you know what? I just turned that into a sermon. Presto, changeo, sermon for Sunday morning. No, no. Paul gives what he's told to give. 
and he's told to give the gospel. And when you look at the gospels and the epistles sensibly, you're going to find it all over the place. And we dare not miss this. It's the same pattern in the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's the same pattern in the apostles' ministry. It's the same pattern in church history. You need a preacher. You need someone sent to give them the gospel. So that's our first point. The gospel came. The second point, the message is welcome. That's verse 6b. For you welcome the message in spite of severe suffering. And again, the parable that Jesus gave of the sower and sowing the seed comes to light here. The seed falls on rocky ground. That refers to someone who hears the word at once and receives it with joy. And then Jesus says, but since they have no root, they last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Well, that was them, but that was not these Thessalonians. Now, you're going to have to think for a minute. Why didn't they fall away when suffering came, severe suffering came? Were they like extra special people? You know, they were Mr. and Mrs. Fantastic, and they had fantastic just way about them, and they were just so fantastic that people had to say, oh, I want to become a Christian, you know, come to their feet. Is that the case? Listen, that is absolutely not the case. When you read about the Thessalonians in the New Testament, this is what you're going to find out. They were pagans. They weren't Jews. They were polytheists, which means they worship all kinds of, of idols and all kinds of gods. And if you read Acts 17, Luke writes about the citizens of Thessalonica. You ready? They were not of noble character. In other words, literally, these Thessalonians were so unimpressive. There was nothingly, nothing unusually fantastic about them. If you would... They were just plain old Joes. They were plain old Joes. They were not of noble away. Now think through that. But the gospel was declared to them in power, and despite the suffering that's inherent in obeying the gospel, they, they welcomed the message. So think of it this way. Paul said, there's one God, and they said, yes, he made everything. Yes, we rebelled against him. Yes, Paul, sin is punished. Yes, Paul, we welcome that. Christ suffered in our place. Oh, yes, Paul, live in him now. Yes, save from the wrath to come later. Yes, love by God forever, ever. Yes, yes, but congregation, you will undergo much trials in the meantime as you follow Jesus Christ. Difficult pause. What are they going to say? Well, what did they say? Yes, we, we welcome the difficulty. We welcome the difficulty for the sake of the gospel. We welcome the severe trials for the sake of the gospel. Hmm. Gospel came. Message welcome. Number three, example is needed. That's verses 6a and 7a. You see it there? Verse 6a, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Verse 7a, 7a, and you became a model to all believers. So, so there is an absolutely no sense in this a kind of easy, believe, you know, easy believism. A kind of one, two, three, skadoodle. You're a Christian. Now do what you like. That is not the case here. The same gospel graces that saved them is the same gospel graces that are making them more and more like Jesus Christ. And so that's why these new converts in Thessalonica, verse 6a, they mimicked, they imitated. Mimite is the, is the Greek word. They imitated Jesus and they imitated the apostles because faith without work is dead. But listen carefully. Ours is a living faith 
in a specific direction to imitate Christ, to mimic the apostles. And was it costly to Christ? Yes. Was it costly to the apostles? Yes. Why would we think that it would not be costly to us? So one of the most clearest and easily recognized characteristics of Jesus and the apostles, despite the suffering that came with the preaching of the cross, was this, Acts 5. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. That, were the, that was the apostles. Now listen to Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. This is a little paraphrase. Jesus, you're a healing machine. Everybody in Capernaum is looking for you. And then this is how Jesus responds to that. Okay, let us go somewhere else to a nearby village so I can preach, so I can herald the gospel because that is why I came. So Jesus is willing to leave a place with some sick people so he can go to another place to proclaim and preach the gospel. And that is, in essence, the, the pattern that these new converts and Thessalonica followed. Jesus became the biggest thing in their lives. Jesus became the biggest thing in their lives. She had ordinary Christians, which is ordinary minds. Just, but they're becoming like their master. They're friends with sinners. And they declare the good news. And they mimic Jesus and the apostles but verse 7a, they become a pattern for other people to follow. That's the people in Macedonia and the people in Achaia. They mimic the Thessalonians. So we need examples in our church leaders, and we need to be examples in others. Now, our time is just about done. I'll just track with me. Okay, problem, personal evangelism. We're not as good as we could be. I'm not saying that specifically. Only you know that. Personal evangelism. We need to be better. What do we need? We need, a, we need the gospel to come by way of preaching. That's what Paul started. Gospel to come by way of preaching. And then we need to welcome the gospel in spite of the severe suffering in our lives. And then we need examples. We have examples in Christ and the apostles. We need to be examples and you need examples here. And it begins, to be honest with you, with people like me. And once that happens... Then verse 8 comes. The message rang out. Do you see it there? The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Okay, so our time is done. I want you to listen carefully. What was the Thessalonians' big secret that made them so that wherever Paul went, people were talking about them. There was no radio, no web, no cell service, none of that stuff. But wherever people went, they were talking about these average Thessalonians. You want to know their secret? You ready? They were converted. They were converted. Now, if you would take that in humility, that is very, very encouraging. That is very, very encouraging. All you need to be is converted. Well, do I need to go to the Alpha 2000 training course so I can be a great evangelist? Well, I don't know. But you do need to be converted. That's what happened here. And if you read history, that's what's happened in other places. The message rang out. It literally, it was like a loud thunderclap. Was it Friday night when that loud boom and the rain? Did you get woken up by that? 
It's just like that. The idea is that their character and the spirit of these ordinary new Thessalonican converts sounded the message loudly and proudly and humbly and broadly. And by life and by lip, they told the gospel. Not one, but both. Life and lip, they told the gospel. I have a friend who quoted to me, my friend, you have, you have conquered me. You have comforted me, conquered me by your example. One quote and we're done. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patient die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and give no hand? Can you, can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? Thank you for your attention. Let's, let's um, bow for prayer. And if the men who will be serving communion, if you would please come forward now, that would be wonderful. Now, Father, whatever is useful and humble in my talk uh, and correct, keep it in our minds. Whatever is, is not either, then just remove it. But help us to be better if we need to, for Jesus' sake. Amen.